This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 10th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Daryl Withrow. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's text comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulah and the land of Mephiti. But in the latter time he was made, he was made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee, and the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you and with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumulant, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the director of discipleship for our church. Um, We will be in Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the desk out there. Please feel free to grab one. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, I'm pleading with you, take that thing home and read it. Uh, And don't worry about getting up. I'll pray in a minute. We'll all close our eyes and you can sneak out and grab one and come back. No, I'm just kidding. You can actually get up and get one. No one's going to throw anything at you. Uh, I will pray for us. King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. We are assembled as your church to lift up your holy name and glorify you. Jesus, you are the light that is shown in the gloom of our darkness, in the gloom of our sin, in the gloom of our love of self, in the gloom uh, of our self-centered love of comfort, in the gloom of a life oppressed by Satan, in the gloom of a life just trying to keep up with the American dream, and and the gloom of a life uh, apart from you. Jesus, you are the light that is shown in the darkness. Light is shown on us because you've come to deal with our sin. Light is shown on us because you've come to deal with the broken world in which we live. And light has shown on us because you have come to be our king, not because of anything we have done, but everything you have done. 
And so I pray as we come together, Lord Jesus, that, that our hearts would be retuned around the song that is the gospel and that, that our hearts would, would be aglow and alit with a fire for you this Christmas. Uh, the, the, the stuff of the world and the stuff of distraction and all the things that seek to take our hearts away from your praise would be silenced because the song of the gospel would ring out so clearly and so loudly in our hearts that the only thing we can do this Christmas is worship. That the only thing we can do is love you. That the only thing we can do is love other people. That the only thing we can do is proclaim the goodness of you who came as a child and are now our king. God Almighty, Holy Spirit, whatever is just me, of me, may it just be forgotten and lost, but the things that are of God, may they sing in our hearts. Be with us now and empower these words and empower our time together. Uh, Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. So we are in Isaiah. We are in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Uh, and today we're going to talk about your Christmas card. And I'm either going to ruin your Christmas card or hopefully reframe your Christmas card in light of the reality of the gospel. So you went to Costco, perhaps. Uh, and at Costco, you looked at all the Christmas card options that were presented before you. And you saw some of reindeer and some of Santa Claus. And you needed something for you and your dog and your family or whomever to be on this card to send to your friends and relations. And then you get to this one that says, To us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And you say, wow, that sounds really Christian-y. I'll go with that one. Right? And that sounds nice, and it sounds sentimental, and everybody loves babies, right? If you don't like babies, there's something wrong with you. Babies are amazing, right? And so you, you pick this thing as your Christmas card, and, and if we're not careful, that has more to do with sentimentality than the reality of the text that we are about to look at today, because today we are about to hear about a different baby than the one of sentimentality or sort of that, that imagination, that, that sort of baby Jesus in the manger, but he's not really God who's ruling over all things. Uh, this text shatters that kind of framework and thinking, because this text is about the Lord Jesus Christ. God himself who enters into human history as a baby, not to be a baby, but to be the rescuer and the savior to reach down into the gloom of our lives, to shine light in the darkness of our sin, to shine light in the darkness created by our love of self, to shine light in the darkness against Satan and to rescue us and to save us. And not because of anything we've done, but absolutely everything he has done. That's why it's a great verse for your Christmas card, by the way. So it's Advent, and my hope as we come to this text, this is a big and weighty and serious text. And honestly, there's very little in way of uh, application for us in this text, because I think when we come to a text like this, uh, we just need to have our hearts retuned for worship. Advent is a very traditional time on the church calendar. Uh, on the church calendar, it, it's the time that we get ready to celebrate Christmas. And, and we do this in lots of different ways. Like some of you are legalists who say that it is wrong or even sinful to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. You're free in Christ to listen to Christmas music in July. I have Bible verses that back me up on this. <laughs> so you can say inflammatory things about my musical taste, but I've got the Bible. So... So there, neener, neener. 
But we, we all do this. I think we do this even just as Americans. We, you know, you turn on the music and the eggnog starts coming out and you're spending too much at Starbucks on expensive drinks where they're taking store-bought eggnog and putting it in your coffee and making you pay like three times what it would cost to just go buy the eggnog and the coffee and put it together yourself. I don't know what magic happens there, but let you in on a little trade secret. You can get those things at the store. Um, however, uh, when, when we're doing this, and the reason for Advent is that we are, are preparing our hearts to drink deeply the reality that the God of the universe has come into history on the great rescue mission to deal with our sin and to set us free. And this is vastly larger than how awesome it is to watch Claymation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is awesome. You might not think it's awesome, but I think it's awesome. I don't care. But the reality is that thing pales. I mean, like, the word is not strong enough. The things that we do, the accoutrement that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, those things just pale in comparison to the wonder and the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God. And we need to have our hearts, I think, as we prepare to celebrate that reality, retuned around the truth of the gospel and the truth of the incarnation so that we might worship Him well and make much of His name well. And even to just take this stuff and make it for His glory. So as we dig into Isaiah, we're in chapter 9, which is about there in your Bible. So not quite in the middle, but about there. We're in Isaiah, we're in chapter 9, and we're starting in verse 1. And, and like I said, there's actually not a lot of application in this text. But what I want us to do is walk in the, the reality of implication. So as you're reading it or you're listening to the Word, I want you to just ask yourself the question, because this is true, what does that mean for the rest of my life? What does that mean? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm pleading with you. Ask a very similar question. If this is true, if the things that are written here in this text are true, what does that actually mean for my life? What demands does that reality actually make on my life? So here we are. We're in Isaiah. We're in chapter 9. We're starting in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for who, uh, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephitali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Two things we need to talk about here. So it talks about this former time when God is judging these outside nations. We, we miss this sometimes. So God has his family, the people of God, the, 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 the Hebrew people, right? And when people come against them, he deals with them like a good, loving God who loves them. You, someone picks on your kids, you deal with them, right? Like no one thinks, oh, kids should just, yeah, go ahead, just work. You guys should just work it out. Like, no, no, someone's picking on your kid. You step in because you love them and you're their parent and that's your job, right? That's what you do. So God does that. And by the way, when God does that and you're an attacking nation, you really does that. Don't mess with God. Just if you're here and you're new, you need to know that that's something that you should know about life. Do not pick a fight with the one who made absolutely everything. You will lose. I've got good news about that fight we picked, but we'll get there. Now, the other thing is we hear this word Galilee of the nations and uh, being, you know, good listeners of Johnny Cash hymns, you think back on the hymn that goes something like, the man came down from Galilee, so the holy book does say, because that's how you have to talk when you're Johnny Cash and you're singing hymns, does say, 
And you think, oh yeah, wasn't Jesus from Galilee? That sounds, that sounds good. Galilee, right? So at this point in time, 700 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ is where we're at in the book of Isaiah, uh, 700 years before, Galilee does not belong to God's people. Those are the people outside. Now what's really important about this text, unless you grew up going to synagogue, when we're talking about the nations, these people we're going to talk about who are dwelling in darkness, these people who are outside of the covenants and the promises and the people of God, unless you grew up in synagogue and came to see that Jesus is Hamashiach, we're talking about you. You're the Gentiles. I'm the Gentiles. We're the ones outside of the family of God. Now what's amazing about this is the people, these people who are on the outside of the family of God are not awesome to God's people at this point in time. They're not awesome at all. And yet we'll see how gracious and amazing the God of the universe is. Now listen. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel. And it's called the fifth gospel because it says so much about Jesus. Now, what's amazing about this particular text in this particular time in this particular place is that he did something, and I hope you noticed it. He kind of spoke in a past tense there, didn't he? That's a very good translation of the Hebrew words here. This is what's called technically the prophetic perfect. Now, you don't need to remember those two words together. But when I say prophetic, think prophet, prophet, prophetic. Perfect doesn't mean that it's awesome. It's actually just a tense of the language. So it's in the past tense that it comes down. So he is talking about the incarnation of Jesus, what Jesus is going to do at the cross, what Jesus is going to do through the resurrection for people 700 years from this point in time who are those who are dwelling in deep darkness. And by the way, if you are not here and you're like, man, these people are weird, here's the thing you need to know about Christian people. We understand our people, ourselves to be people who dwelt in deep darkness and have been rescued by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Not because we're clever, not because we're smart, not because we were born into a particular family, but because Jesus Christ in the, is in the business of saving people, placing people in those families where they get saved, or, or moving in people's lives at the right time and the right moment to shine light into the darkness to save us from ourselves and from our sin. And so when we talk about this gloom and we talk about this darkness, we know this is where we once were. And if you don't know Jesus, we want you to come out into the light of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. We want it for you so desperately because we know this is where freedom and life and glory is. The people who walked, past tense, walked in darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So why is he talking in the past tense about a future tense event? Because when God makes a plan, when God moves in time, when God moves in history, when God says he's going to get something done, it's done. It's his timing when he wants to actually execute it. But as far as it's concerned, when God says, I'm going to do this, it's done. When Jesus says, I'm going to wipe all the tears from all the eyes, and you might say, when? It's as good as done. Past tense, it's good as done. When he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And here we are, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Now listen, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So he's talking about taking this people, the Hebrew people, and welcoming these nations into this people. He's talking about increasing the nation by going and saving people like you and me and involving them in this thing. 
and coming to be the Messiah that these people were waiting for uh, and to come and move in history and to save a faithful remnant and to call a people into this thing and in this thing that is the church, in this thing that are all those who love Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul is joy. Joy everlasting. That, that when you actually understand who Jesus is, and the life that you actually have because of him, when you see that reality clearly, when, you're, when your life is reframed about this, there are a few things you can do other than sing. There are a few things you can do other than smile. There are a few things other, that you can do other than worship the God of the universe. And so he says this, as they are glad when they divide the spoil uh, in the harvest. So this is, this is agrarian. This is farm language, right? So we're right here in Snohomish. We're pretty much surrounded by a bunch of farmland. Uh, that's awesome and, and wonderful, and it's cool to live in Washington and just drive around and say, wow, I live here in like Lord of the Rings land with mountains and fields, and it's amazing, right? You should, because Jesus put you here, and you should thank him for that regularly. It is amazing to take a drive on two, and you're like, what? However, uh, when we talk about this, we miss, we miss the depth of this agrarian farm life where they were so dependent on each other no one has a tractor to help them. To, to bring the barley or the grain in, you must work with your neighbors or you're all going to die, period. Now you work together as a community to do this thing and it is a good thing when you have worked together as a family or as a community and you bring in uh, the grain and you know we're not going to starve this winter. That is a good feeling. That, that's hard for us to appreciate the joy these people feel because you can get in your car and get like chow mein at Hagen's or you can get chocolate from far countries at Hagen's or whatever else you want at Hagen's or Safeway if you prefer. It's across the street. They didn't have that kind of luxury. They didn't have that at all. So, so what that, that joy comes, and when that joy comes and they're dividing the harvest, they know they have life. They get to live. Now, this is talking about this great light that has shone in the darkness. This light is Jesus, right? And I'll show you in a second, I promise. So this light that is shining. Now, we get these three, four statements. F-O-R, four statements. Now, uh, I would urge you, and I always say this whenever anyone gives me a microphone, please, 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 pretty please with sugar on top, please read your Bibles slowly. There is a lot of information in the Bible that we miss if we do not read the word slow enough. What does for mean? It's a because kind of word, right? So light has shone in the darkness. And then a great time to ask the question, why? What do you mean by that? Because. Because what? Well, we're going to get three because statements or three for statements here. Because Jesus deals with the burden of sin. Because Jesus deals with the brokenness of our world. And because Jesus has come to be our king. I'll show you. So verse 4. For, or because, because the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor. So all that is talking about these people who are dwelling in darkness. Watch your prepositions. Prepositions, watch your pronouns. That's the word I was looking for. Pronoun, his, her, yada, yada, yada. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, you have broken is on the day of Midian. Now there's a lot going on here. There's a lot packed into that one just amazing verse. The, the thing about our Bibles is that we are intended as Christian people, the Bible belongs to us. Uh, people who love Jesus are the only people, and this is radical to say, and I don't, 
I don't mean offense by it, but it's sometimes the truth is offensive. The reality is, is that Christian people are the only people who can write, read the Bible rightly. Why? Because we're the only people that believe Jesus is Messiah. This whole thing is about him. Jesus said so, Luke 24. And so as Christian people, we have our Bible, and we need to read it left to right and right to left. What do I mean by that? Well, from left to right means that you can't actually understand the Old Testament really at all unless you understand who Jesus is and what he's done and the truth contained in the New Testament. So the New Testament must, must, must be our lens for the other 78% of the Bible, which Jesus said is all about him. And sometimes you read it and you're like, I don't know what 2 Chronicles has to do about Jesus. Great thing to do is read your New Testament a bunch and then read it a bunch. Uh, and it turns out the more familiar you are with the text of the New Testament, the more you read the Old Testament, you realize, oh, this whole thing really is about Jesus. There's also great commentaries and things, but honestly, there's nothing beats reading your Bible. Nothing beats the understanding that comes from just reading your Bible a lot. So we start in the New Testament and we read backwards, but also we start in the Old Testament and we read forward. Because the whole thing backwards tells us the whole thing is about Jesus and forward shows us this amazing arc of redemptive history by which God made everything good, human beings broke everything, made a promise and fixed it in Jesus and this is the whole of human history in all 30 seconds. So yes, there are some parts that could be filled in here. God made everything good, we break it, Jesus comes to fix it and Jesus is putting the world back the way it's supposed to be for all who repent and believe. Repent and believe. Okay, and so here we are, and we have to do a little, little bit of that kind of reading here in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, this word's going to be really, really important for us. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So Midian is where Moses goes. Moses, uh, if you don't know this, most people in the Bible are at least a little shady. So if you're shady and you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're in good company, repent and believe and stop being shady and love Jesus, right? Welcome. You're in with a bunch of shady people. We dwell in darkness. Shady, right? Works. It's right there. So Midian is where Moses goes after Moses screws up. So Moses is uh, a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's home. Uh, he begins to long for his people. Uh, he finds an Egyptian who's picking on some Hebrew people. They're in slavery and Moses kills him. And then he buries him in the stand. And then the next day, he sees a couple Hebrew guys, and they're fighting. He says, oh, hey, guys, chill out. Let's not fight. And then one of the guys says, hey, Moses, are you going to stick us in the sand like you did that other guy? And Moses says, I got to go. See you later. And he leaves to Midian. That's a bit of the remix, but that's about what happens. So he's in Midian, and there he is. And there, the God of the universe, in his grace and mercy, manifests himself, the manifest presence of God appears in a burning bush communicating to Moses. And in so doing, it's a declaration of war against Egypt who's enslaved the people of God. God has shown up on the scene in Exodus chapter 3 and he tells Moses, you go tell Pharaoh you're going to let everybody go. And he says, you, you know that Pharaoh is the hegemonic world superpower guy in charge of everything and can destroy everything, right? You know that guy. And God says, you know I'm God, right? And Moses says, again, this is a bit of a remix, but not far off. And then Moses says, well, who shall I tell Pharaoh sent me? And he says the most amazing thing, both in terms of grammar and theology. He says, I am who I am. God has no past he doesn't exist only in past and only in future. God 
always is and always was and always will be. God, his massiveness and his life outside of time has these ineffable, unspeakable realities. And this God who is so big and so massive appears as this burning bush and says, I am who I am. It's amazing. It's a declaration of war, but this isn't the only I am statement we get. So in John's gospel, John goes out of his way with these seven I am statements for Jesus, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Uh, I am the sheep gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. Now, what's really, really interesting is he uses these two little words. You don't need to remember, but, but it's worth noting. You only have to note these things when you can't not note them. It's called the ego me. So one's the word I, and one's the word I am. In Greek, you can actually just say ego, or no, pardon me, ami. Ego is the waffles, right? Ami, and it just means I am. Greek verbs are weird. They get an object, which is the, the noun in there. You didn't know you were going to have a grammar lesson today, but here it is. He didn't need to say it that way is what I'm saying. Now, what's really interesting about the way that John says it is he says it just the same way that in the Greek Old Testament it's written down for the things that the burning bush says. And so what he's trying to say, and even the most liberal people, most liberal Bible scholars who don't think John wrote it and think it was way after the fact, think whoever did write John's gospel is trying to communicate and point back to this thing that's happening in Exodus 3 where God says, I am. God is. God is being. Now what that means is that John is trying to point to us this thing. That God who appeared as that burning bush, that God who is being, is incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. That the God who is so huge set aside his divine rights and entered into human history to rescue us, not because we are awesome, but because he is gracious. Not because we are glorious, but he is worthy of our glory. He's, he's redeemed a people to love him and know him. And just as that burning bush was a declaration of war against Egypt, that, I, that God was going to redeem his people, Jesus' incarnation, that baby being born, that reason that verse belongs on your Christmas card is a declaration of war against your sin and against Satan and against death and against a broken world by which the God of the universe has come into history. And it is a declaration of war against those things. It's the declaration of the rescue mission to save you from yourself and from your sin and to redeem you and pull you out of all of this. And I even think it's right here in Isaiah. So this language in verse 4, uh, this same, these same exact words are in the same exact book, uh, specifically in the Hebrew. Uh, but when, you, when you're there, when you, when you hear things, when you're trying to figure out the meaning of something and what something means in a book of the Bible, you start with what the other things that particular author has said. So you look for him and you read that book again and again and again and again and again and again and you say, huh, look, John keeps saying this and John keeps saying this and John keeps saying this. And it's not that you don't use the rest of your Bible to understand that, but you start right there. And the interesting thing is that Isaiah has a little more to say with these words. Isaiah 53 verse 4 is an echo of these same words. Now I know this is our Good Friday chapter, but I'm a, I'm a full gospel Christmas guy. It's the whole thing, life, death, the resurrection of Jesus. Not the other kind of full gospel, that kind of full gospel. Verse 4. Surely, now listen how much it echoes even from that text we just looked at. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
There's the, the echo of that, that, that burden being lifted. Now listen, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom? Now mind you, I must remind you, this is 700 years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay? Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He came as a carpenter, not as a king. I mean, he came as a king, but no one knew he was a king yet, right? He was incarnated as an actual human being, fully God. But don't forget he was also fully human. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You might come in here, and this might be the first time you've ever been in a building that belongs to a church. We're the church, the building's the building. It's confusing, I know, because everyone calls the building the church, but really it's actually the people in here. But moving on. This might be your first time hanging out with us. This might be the first time uh, you hear these things, and you hear me talking, and you think, well, that's nice for you. That's nice for you that you've got this Jesus guy and this nice life that's nice for you, but you don't know what I bring in here. You don't know what my life is like. You don't know what my family is like. You don't know what I've dealt with. You don't know the things I've seen. And friends, I'll tell you what, unless I actually do know you, to that I would say, you're right. You're right. Jesus, however, entered into human history as a faithful high priest to be made like his brothers in every way so he could relate to us and be faithful to us. Jesus shows up, the Savior of the world. He's rejected by the priests, He's rejected by the Pharisees. He's rejected by people. He's called rude names. He's healing people and casting out demons. And his own mama, his mama and his brothers show up to basically say, "You, Jesus, you're crazy and it's time to come home. In Mark's gospel, it's right there. And at the same time, the religious leaders are saying, you've got to stop this. You're not who you say you are. This is all happening in the same conversation. Jesus knows about rejection. Jesus knows about struggle. He has a deep, intimate relationship with suffering. He drank the cup of wrath on the cross that we deserve so we don't have to. He knows what it's like to quite literally walk a mile in your shoes. And also remember, he is the, the God of the universe who came into human history to do this. And he's the God that knows you more than you know yourself right now because he's omnipotent and omnipresent. And he sees right into your heart right now. And if you don't know him, he has brought you here by his sovereign hand to show you who he is. Verse 4, here's our language. And surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 700 years this was written before the crucifixion. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us Peace, and we'll talk about that word quite extensively here in a minute. And with his wounds, we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You and I have loved self. You and I have loved comfort. You and I have loved other things than Jesus, and yet Jesus has come to rescue you, not because you're amazing, but because he is amazing. This is different and unique in any world religious system, period. This is amazing. 
This should, this should honestly make us freak out. There's a bunch of amazing things that continue, and you'll have to read those, and I would urge you to read those on your own time this afternoon, perhaps. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. There's our language again that we heard in Isaiah 9. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What's amazing about Isaiah 53, as far as we can tell, we don't have any text prior to Jesus where anybody got that that was about Jesus. Now, maybe somebody did, but we don't have any of those, those documents, any of those writings or thinking that people had prior to this. Because as far as they knew, when they read things like, to us a child is born, they thought a king with a sword who fights Romans or Assyrians or Babylonians or Persians or Greeks and gets us out of the hard spot we're in in life. But Jesus had a greater plan for us. Yeah, he'll deal with those kinds of things. We'll see it in a second. Jesus came into history to save us from ourselves and from our sin. Light is shown in the darkness because Jesus has come to deal with the burden of our sin. Next verse, verse 6. Oh, pardon me, verse 5. 4. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Literally, the boot of the booted one, which is a little redundant if you just put that straight up in English, but the boot of the booted one uh, and the, the, the garment covered in bloodshed, quite literally bloodshed, will be like fuel for the fire. So when we think of this, uh, we live in a broken world, right? We, we live in a world where there is war. Uh, anyone who's actually ever been to war will tell you that no one ever wants to go to war. Uh, this does not mean there are not times and places where people must defend themselves and war happens, uh, but certainly uh, war is an ugly thing. And anyone who's ever been there, anyone who I've ever known who's been there will tell you so. It, it only sounds fun when you're watching a movie in the comfort of your home and you've never been on that front line. It sounds really awesome when John Wayne's there and you're like, yeah, tanks sound cool. Not when you're fighting them, <laughs> Right? So when he's talking here, uh, to, to kind of bring this into our own time and place, think instead of the boot of the booted one, think, you know, M16, F18, Hornet, uh, uh, fatigues, uh, or, or whatever other instruments and utensils are used for war. When Jesus comes and when he brings this thing to fruition, uh, he gathers up those utensils of war, and they are no more. The metaphor here is they're used as fuel for the fire. So this thing that has been used to, to create chaos and bloodshed and war, we will sit and roast marshmallows on. We will be warmed by. We will be comforted by. God will take those things and he will change them and he will deal with them because there is no war in the kingdom of God. When it's all said and done, there is only a conqueror and his name is Jesus. And he has dealt with the final war and he has dealt with it. And you never have to worry about what it says on the news is happening somewhere else ever again. Because that's over. There's something about us that can feel that. The, the temporariness uh, 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 of war. And something, even, uh, even when we say, yes, there, this even happens sometimes and is necessary sometimes. No one, no one wants that. But I think really this is a kind of a mirrorism, a bigger picture of a bigger thing. And the reality is that you and I live in a broken world where things like war happen, where things like M16s need to be created, where, where people build F-18 Hornets, or at least they used to. Uh, that was my favorite plane as a 10-year-old kid, by the way. 
there's going to be a time where, where we don't do that anymore. We don't need to do that anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. The, the stuff of a broken world uh, is undone. Now, if you take verse 5, which is amazing because it, it just shows us how the, the light has shone in the darkness because God is going to deal with a broken world through Jesus Christ. But if you take verse 5 and you go to Costco and you say, I see that it says, for to us a child is born. But before that, could you please put for every boot of the trampling warrior? Right? No one does that. No one puts that on their Christmas card. But I think if we're not careful, we, we kind of get to that sentimentality of a baby being born. And babies, I love babies, right? You got to love babies. You just have to, period. Or there is actually something wrong with you. I said it out loud, and it's true. And I have Bible verses for that, too. Right? But it's not just about the sentimentality of this baby, but this next because statement we have. For to us, because to us, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Now, again, this son is going to do these great things. He's going to come deal with our sin. And this son is going to come deal uh, with this world. Uh, we, just, we just miss this again and again, right? This baby is going to come and deal with this brokenness. Um, go with me to John chapter 3. So we talk about this baby shining a light by dealing with the brokenness. So Christmas time always makes me, make me think how I want things back. Right, uh, I want Christmas back. And we think getting Christmas back means that you have to go to the Hagen, and when you're at Hagen, and they say, Happy Holidays, you say to them, Merry Christmas! Heh! <laughs> and you stick it to them. Because that's exactly what gives everybody a Merry Christmas. You walking around sticking it to everybody who says Happy Holidays. <laughs> now, I will say Merry Christmas to them, but I'll say more like this. Merry Christmas! Probably less Tiny Tim, more kind, but kind. Yeah, I can say Merry Christmas and be kind, but I'm not doing it to stick it to anybody, right? We, we miss the profound nature of this child who's being born to deal with sin and to deal with darkness. And John 3.16, like Christmas, is a verse, I want this back, right? This doesn't just belong at the end zone. It doesn't just go with Austin Stone 3.16. Uh, it doesn't just do those things. But if we're careful, we can almost get to the point as Christians where we hear it either sort of used as a fluffy blah, blah, blah verse or whatever, that we just leave it. There is a reason this verse is so important. And here we are in verse 16, for God so loved the world. Cosmos is the word cosmos, which is where we get the word cosmos from. Now, there are a lot of ways that you can use this particular word, uh, including but not limited to the known world or the whole world or all of humanity or these different things. But John and John's gospel in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John really consistently uses this world to talk about the world systems that are organized against God. The rebellion of human beings and the things they do to build their Tower of Babel against the God of the universe. So when you think about it that way, and you think about the gloom that we heard about already, this horrible neighborhood we live in, that is this life without Jesus, uh, this self-centered life, this world organized against God and organized against people, and we hear, for God so loved that bad neighborhood, the world. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He looks on our lives. He sees how we chase sin and we chase death. And he comes not just to deal with our sin, but deal with our sin and give us life and life in abundance. And that life in abundance comes from knowing and loving the God who made us and his name is Jesus. that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And also, whenever John uses the word eternal life, he's never thinking just out there. Eternal life for John always starts now. If you meet Jesus today, today your life begins. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he came to preach good news to those who were near and those who were far off. And it's an indictment against ourselves when God says, I sent the rescue team for you and you didn't want anything to do with it. Right? My dad has a horrible, horrible, horrible joke that I'm about to tell you. And it goes like this. There's a man and there's a flood coming. And as the flood comes, a truck comes and says, hey man, get in the boat. Uh, we got to go. And he says, uh, no, no, God's going to save me. The waters go up. A boat comes. Come on, get in the boat. We got to go. No, no, no. God's going to save me. Uh, he, he waits. A helicopter shows up. He's sitting on his roof. He's about to drown. He says, no, no, no. God's going to save me. He arrives in heaven and says, Jesus, I thought you were going to save me. And he said, I sent a truck and a boat and a helicopter. What else did you want me to do? A bomb chomp, right? And if you ever meet my dad, you just tell him that I told you that joke and he will be so sad because he's got like two of them and that was one of them. It's not theologically correct. It's not right. But here's the reality. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus is Lord. He will save you right now. Come to know him. Come to love him. Receive his grace and his mercy. This is the lifeboat of your soul. If you reject him, it is an indictment against you because God has come to save you. Not because of anything you've done, but everything he's done. And you say, I don't want it. Okay. You're condemned. You've indicted yourself in the problem. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in uh, is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light, listen, this is Isaiah language. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. This is me apart from Jesus. I loved the darkness of my life. And it wasn't until that God shone that light of that gospel on my heart that I received him. Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so a light has shone in this darkness. Because Jesus has come to deal with our sin. Because Jesus has come to deal with our broken world. And because Jesus has come to be our king. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we think of this government, we're not just talking about like the IRS or bureaucracy. We're talking about the world being rightly ruled by the one who made the world with a redeemed people forever and ever and ever. It says these four names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, right? When you put your finger on Mighty God and you put your finger on to us, a son is given. 
This is where our heads should explode with excitement. Because these ineffable realities of the incarnation that God came into human history and became like us. The infinite, ineffable God became like us. Not because of anything you've done. Not because he needed it. Not because he needed to. And not because he needed anything from you. But because he has a gracious, good God who moves in history. Everlasting Father. So when we think this, if you're, we're Trinitarian because we're Christians. If you're not Trinitarian, you're not a Christian. That's one of the things that makes you a Christian. That means we believe one God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so you see Jesus called, um, pardon me, he's called Everlasting Father. And you say, this is kind of freaking me out with my Trinitarian theology. It, because here's what we know. And maybe this is just me and how I read things like this and the things that go through my mind. Because, of course, the first thing I say, well, I know the Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Father. The Father's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son. Three persons, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay? Uh, what I think it's talking about here is his kingly rule, his messianic rule, the rule of his kingdom like being headed by a good father. Right? So we are all have different father experiences. And if you're a father, these weights might weigh on you like they weigh on me. Uh, in your mind, you probably have someone who's like the best father you've ever known and the worst father you've ever known. And there's two guys in my neighborhood that fill those spots, right? Like the one guy who's awesome and the one guy who's horrible. You put them on the scale with God's, God's expectation for father. And they both, even the raddest guy, Jake Knuckles' dad, who was so incredible. I won't say the other guy's name, Right? They pale in comparison when you put them on the scale next to God's uh, uh, vision for what a dad should be, right? And we all, have to, we all have to work with this, and we all have to walk in this. And as Christian people, we're continuing to die to ourselves, to live to Christ, and to, to, to be other-centered. Uh, but, but imagine this king who's ro- ruling like a good father, right? I think that's what he's after. And then he says this, Prince of Peace. There's a lot of things that doesn't mean. So in our world where you have, uh, you know, your NPR app or your Fox News app, there, can I say both on either side so no one throws anything at me? Right? Whatever's on your app, whatever app you use to get your news, you hear about crazy things happening all around the world in a way that people never, ever, ever, ever did before. Right? Never happened like this before. It's, it's new. <laughs> it's new. Um, so when we think of peace, we kind of think about like a ceasefire. We think about, you know, uh, two countries kind of, I'm not going to shoot bullets at you for a while, and you're not going to shoot bullets at me for a while, and call that peace. That, that's not peace, right? It's not actual peace. That's not a biblical view of peace. Likewise, you're driving in the van with your children to come to assemble with God's people, to hear about from God's word, and somehow four of your children are simultaneously whistling, and they're whistling four different songs at the exact same time. There's not room for that in a Honda Odyssey. Four people whistling four songs, and you're driving, and it's icy, and you're trying to concentrate, and you say, hey, y'all, pipe down back there. Good night. Why are you all whistling? And then it's quiet. This is not peace. Right? What's less peaceful is when you roll up, and instead of turning around and telling your kids, what I did there was wrong, please forgive me, but don't ever whistle in the car again. But please forgive me. And they say, I forgive you. And you come in to, to gather with God's people. What's really not peace is if you say, okay, everybody smile. 
and you head on in and you don't say, I'm sorry. And you go and you all pretend like everything's fine. That's not peace. It's just not peace. It might be a ceasefire, but that's no peace. The biblical vision of peace is one of wholeness. It is one of things being as they ought to be. As things being put back the way God designed them. Things functioning on all cylinders and being the way they ought to be. And this Jesus, this promised king, is the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Things come to a wholeness. And this government of his government of peace on planet earth simply expands out into this wonderful, glorious peace where people are right with God, live for him forever, enjoying him forever, and live for his glory. And I honestly run out of words when I imagine that government just expanding, this peace expanding, this thing, how do you take something? Because I only live in this broken world, so I can get as far as this world being put back the way it's supposed to be. That's about as far, and I'm sure whatever's in my mind, uh, and what I see in the text, pales in comparison to what you and I will actually see when he wipes the tears from your eyes, right? Whatever's in my mind or your mind pales compared to what it's going to be. And yet we're told that this thing is going to keep increasing. My, I have, my spiritual imagination runs out at that point in time. That that thing, the rule of King Jesus continues and increases somehow after he's put everything back the way it's supposed to be. I just run out of words. I don't, I don't have a compartment in my mind for the glory that awaits us in that moment. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. If you would go, to me, go with me to Philippians chapter 2, I think this verse uh, takes that, or this section of verses puts kind of some meat on the bones of this vision of this, this child who is born, who's the one who's the, the everlasting prince of peace. And so here we go. We're in Philippians. We're in chapter 2. Philippians about there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's stop. If you are a Christian, you are a person made new. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. You have new desires. And we're in the process of taking off the old person and putting on the new. But this is who you are. There's an essential reality to who you are in Christ right now and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered by God to live for his glory. Now here on, on planet Earth, we're busy taking off that old man and putting on the new. This is the Christian life. Taking off the who we once were and living in the reality of who we now are. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Though, and by the way, this, this is what Christmas is about. <laughs> Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or literally taken by force. What does that mean? That means when the Trinity, when God himself, before the foundations of the earth, hatched a plan uh, to foreknow and to save and to move in history to save sinners from death to life, 
Jesus didn't say, you want me to do what? Die on a cross? Why can't the Holy Spirit do it? That's not what he said. He didn't claim his divine rights. I'm the second member of the Trinity, for goodness sakes. No. No, he doesn't. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He dies for all our rebellion and all of our sin and all the wrong things we've done against God and all the right things we've done for the wrong reasons and all the right things we've chosen not to do and all the things we've worshipped and made the center of our lives other than Jesus. He died for all of that. And that was the plan when he was born. And that was the plan before he was born. Being born in the likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is amazing. This is what that child came to do. This is why that verse belongs on your Costco Christmas card. The zeal, last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we don't bring about an end to our sin. We don't bring about the end to a broken world. Not because of anything we have done does Jesus come into history on this grand and glorious rescue mission to save you from your sin and from death to life. Light has shown in this darkness. Light has shown in this gloom because Jesus has come to deal with our sin. Light has shown because Jesus has come to deal with this broken world and light has shown because Jesus has come to be our king, to rule in our Lives and forever and ever. Now what's really amazing, and this, this is amazing, right? So John, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am, it's one of those I am statements, I am the light of the world. Right? And we know this now. When you actually look at it, you take a minute to pause and to breathe it in. You say, yes, amen, absolutely. You are the light of the world. And then yet Jesus and Matthew, chapter 5, verse 4, 14 says you, or technically y'all. Y'all are the light of the world. You all are the light of the world. Well, how, how can Jesus be the light of the world and how can we be the light of the world at the exact same time? Well, Jesus is the light par excellence, right? He is the light. He is the one. He is the light that shone in the gloom. And yet as he pours the grace of his mercy out upon us and our hearts are transformed, then all of a sudden our hearts are tuned to sing differently. Then our hearts aren't tuned to the stuff of the world and the stuff of comfort and the stuff of sin and the stuff of the love of self and the stuff of idols in the center. All of a sudden when our hearts are tuned to sing the song of Jesus, we become light in the darkness. Because that's a song that all that song is busy doing is saying, Jesus. 
When the, the song of our heart is tuned that way, we're just busy pointing to him and to his cross and to his re- resurrection and his glory and his wonder and his awesomeness, right? But we tune our hearts to a thousand different songs and a thousand different things. And honestly, what's sad and ironic is that Christmas can be one of the times when we most tune our hearts to something other than the gospel. That's when we can most feel uh, the lack we have or, or the strife at home or economic hardship or whatever it might be. And the thing that drives us and controls us is something other than Jesus. But when we look at a text like this, 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 this is the kind of text that we use to take back Christmas. Again, it's not to be, give a snide Merry Christmas at Hagen, but to say all these things we have, all these Christmas artifacts that you see around These are to point us to the glory of the child who was born who shone light in the darkness. Your eggnog is to enjoy to the glory of God Almighty. The presents that you give, you give to people and you say, I'm going to give this to you because I've been giving everything in Jesus. Not just so you can be impressed with the cool thing I got you, even though it is really cool. And we need it. We need texts like this, not, not to find applications. Say, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? Man, what should you do? You should have your heart tuned to the reality of this God who came into history to save you and to free you and to liberate you and give you this light and this life. And so if you don't know him, I'm pleading with you, today is the day. If this is true, there is no more important thing in your life than to know this God, Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing about the gospel is that it's different than every other world system that says you have to do this or you have to do that to get to paradise or to get out of reality or to find fulfillment. It's the story of God who's crossed the gap that you made to get to you to save you, not because of anything you've done, but everything he's done. This is the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He he drinks the cup of wrath we deserve so we don't have to. He rises from the dead and he gives us life. And so if you don't know him, today is the day. If you're looking at this thing, yeah, I live in a dark neighborhood. My mind is a dark neighborhood and my heart is tuned to other things. Come know this God. We'd love to walk with you and talk with you and, and show you who he is. Um, friends, if you're, if you're a Christian person here today and you're saying, yeah, I love Jesus and I love this God and he is amazing and he is glorious and he is wonderful and my heart is not tuned this way. You're, you're saved. You're, you're his, right? But you're just saying, but my heart's not singing the song of Jesus. My heart's singing the song of comfort or stuff or whatever the thing is. We would love to walk with you. God is, God is glorious. He'll meet you right where you're at. Cry out to him. Confess your sin. Uh, uh, come to his word. Walk with his church. He's, he's not hiding this from you. He's not looking to not have your heart tuned to sing this song. He loves to tune that, that heart right up. And, and, and if, if you're... If you're someone who's saying, you know, again, I always say this, but not perfectly, right? But, but your heart is singing that song more than it's not, right? You're following Jesus faithfully. I, I would plead with you. I would plead with you. Where are you going to give of yourself to help other people follow Jesus, to have other people have their hearts tuned to the reality of the gospel? Merry Christmas. Let's pray.